You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy Pastor Terry Riley's talk titled The True Test from the series Master Questions. For more messages and info, please visit creekside.org. John chapter 21. <clears throat> uh, we're going to do another question of Jesus, and as I continue to look at these questions that he asked, I keep thinking about maybe doing another one or two, but I don't know. We'll see. This might be the last. Might have one more. Uh, never make anything for sure. But uh, today we're going to come and look at a question where Jesus, again, it's really almost a rehabilitation question, but it's for Peter, but it's also an important question that everybody in this room ultimately has to uh, consider and then ultimately has to act on. I remember uh, when I went to Bible college, I went there really, I had a friend, his name was Clyde Johnson, I nicknamed him Glider because he said, he said, Terry, let's, let's go to Bible college and you can pick up your credits because at that time I wanted to be a college basketball coach and I was just getting ready to go do my general ed. He says, let's go to Bible college and so we both got these kind of small scholarships and we went there and played basketball and uh, his dad was my, was Trina's and our pastor and he married us and so we went down to Bible college and played basketball. And I had just been a Christian really for a short time, probably about a year. And I um, loved Jesus with all my heart and wasn't a very good student in school and didn't know if I could really do that well in college. But I ended up going. And interestingly enough, I, I did pretty well in college. Uh, most people drop a GPA. I went up a GPA, which wasn't real hard after high school. But uh, I, uh, I did all right. And I worked really hard at it because I was really serious and I really think it's just because I love God and was so thankful for what he did. So, you know, we, we, were, we were toward the end of our first, first semester there, and um, we'd gone through midterms and did all right, and we're taking finals now in our theology class, which is just really hard. I mean, you know, you've got to know what soteriology is and eschatology and hamartology and numerology. I mean, just, you just go on, all these ologies, and trying to keep them straight is really hard for a brainiac like me. And so... <laughs> I'm sitting in my room, and I just got to have it quiet, you know, with all my papers there, and I'm studying and trying to memorize. And uh, Glider, I nicknamed him Glider because he's a big guy, 6'5", everybody loved him, and pretty good basketball player, and uh, smooth and all that kind of stuff. So Glider goes out there, we're studying, I'm going hard at it for about 20 minutes, all of a sudden, I hear the TV go on in the living room, and I'm thinking, well, okay, you know, it's probably Glider, he, he's probably got a you know, keep it all straight, and probably some people, you know, you like to have a little bit of noise behind you to help you focus. I've got to have it quiet. Still do today, and so I said, okay, I just keep studying, and about 20, 25 minutes later, I start smelling hot buttered popcorn, you know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, what's he doing, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of stressed about this whole test thing. It's a final. So I walk out there, and I says, Glider, what? He's, he's sprawled out on the couch, all six, five of him, and he's munching popcorn watching TV. And I said, dude, what are you doing? We've got a final tomorrow in Dr. Anderson's theology class. And he just keeps talking, and without missing a beat, he goes, well, you know, what'd you get on your midterm? I said, oh, 80, 81, I think, you know, it was pretty good for me, and and he goes, well, what did I get? I said, Clyde, you know, you got like a 62 or 64 or something. He goes, well, what grade did we get? I said, we both got C's. 
And we did because he says, well, you know, Dr. Anderson always grades on the curve. So while you're in there studying and you're going to get your 80% or whatever, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to enjoy life and, and get my 60%, we're both going to get C. So what's the big deal? And I thought, now there's some wisdom in that. As I went back to my room and I continued to study my brains out and we probably did the same thing. Well, I thought, you know, uh, Dr. Anderson grades on a curve, Jesus doesn't. You know, it's really in or out. It's yes or no with him in so many ways. And I want to talk to you today about a question that is really, it's really important for our lives. And I really kind of ca call this the final test for Peter. Because remember, Peter's going to become a leader in the church. And Jesus, shortly after this passage, is now going to ascend into heaven where he is today. And now he's praying for us. Hebrews tells us he's making intercession for us. And so what a, what a wonderful thought that we have this Redeemer God who's up there, Jesus Christ, who died for us, rose again, and now he's praying for us. And uh, sometimes we don't even know that, but he is. So if you would, let's pick it up in John chapter 21. Kind of look at this final test for Peter, and it's really a test for you and I today as well. So after this, these things, what things? The resurrection. Uh, Jesus had already revealed himself and come and appeared before the disciples. It says again, now he revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, which had been James and John, and two others of his disciples were there together. Now Peter says this, I'm going fishing. Why would he say that? Well, you have to understand the context of what's taken place here. Remember, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. But before that, what happens? Jesus, uh, 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 Peter, he's just, he's just bellicose, very verb, uh, ver, ver, has a lot of verbiage around Jesus where he's making all these promises. That's why I call him the mint-flavored uh, disciple because he always opens mouth and inserts foot. Remember, at one point, he's standing there with all the disciples and he says to them, he says to Jesus, listen, I don't care if all these other losers around you deny you, I won't. I'll be standing at the end. You can trust me, Lord. And what happens? He's the very disciple that ended up denying Jesus. As a matter of fact, it says he denied him three times. And it says that he went away and he literally, he wept bitterly. So now think about this. All of this time, Jesus is in the grave for three days, and then he resurrects. One of the powerful, one of my favorite scriptures, well, they're all my favorite, but one of them is 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that, Peter, that Jesus appeared before these, these, and to Peter. Why? Because he wants to redeem him, as we're going to see today. But think of Peter. He's probably been going back and forth. He's probably in a little bit of a depression because he knows he's denied the Lord. He wasn't there when he died. He shot off his mouth and then he didn't put up what he said he would do. He denies him for three times. You know how those things go in your mind, don't you? You know, you kind of get this little volleyball match going. How could I? Why did I? What should I do? What's going to happen? So you have to see Peter. He's probably thinking, ah, forget it. I just need something. I just need a mindless diversion and to go back to what I know. So it says, I am going fishing. Now it's interesting because you've got to understand Peter's the leader of the band here. 
And so the other guys say, well, we're coming with you. They told him, so they went out and into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Isn't it interesting that they would go out in the middle of the night? See, that's what happens, loved ones, in sometimes in our disappointment, our sin, our failure. You know what we always do? We always head back to the dark. We head back to the old life. We head back to those things that we thought we enjoyed, that we could do with our own hands and our own strength. But it's interesting if you follow that through. They're fishing all night, and when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Uh, it's interesting because sometimes we forget, you know, we say, well, how could not, anybody not know Jesus? Well, in just a second, it's going to say they were about 100 yards out. So that's pretty far out. I remember a number of years ago, I took my son to the uh, Oakland Ace uh, baseball game. We got there early enough because we wanted to see if we get some foul balls or see some players. And, and I'm walking up. I, actually, Bill was in first service, and he came and reminded me about the whole thing that happened. I'm walking up, and all of a sudden, probably, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 rows up from the infield, and I hear this. Pastor! Pastor! And, I, and I'm thinking, well, how many pastors could be here? There's only like 50 people in the whole Oakland A stadium. And I'm looking around, and all of a sudden I see this guy, Pastor Terry! Pastor Terry! He's down by the infield waving his hands, and, and he gets my attention. And I walk down there, and it was Bill Weebach, who was an usher for the Oakland A's. And I didn't recognize him, though, from up above. I had to get close. So these guys are 100 yards out. And so we, we just think, well, boy, don't you know Jesus' voice? Or no, you don't when you're that far away. So verse 6, men, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? And I love this. No, they answered. Now, that's really unusual for fishermen, isn't it? I mean, what are they going to say? Well, you know, I had this, I, I had this one that got away. Or, man, they've been nibbling like crazy. But these guys are really honest, and probably because they know it's Jesus, and they just say, nope. So what does he say? He yells at, hey, cast your nets on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. If you refer back, you'll know that that's the same statement that he spoke in Luke chapter 5 when he first called the disciples, and especially Peter, out from himself. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, speaking, that's John, the beloved, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied out his outer garment around him, for he was stripped down. He plunged into the sea, but since they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. Now, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. And on it was fish lying on it and bread. So Jesus says in verse 10, hey, bring some of those fish you've got that you've caught. Jesus told them. So Simon Peter went out and he hauled the net ashore. And it was full of large fish. There was 153 of them. Now, see, these guys are fishermen. I got 153. What was yours? So even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Sometimes you love Jesus' little invitation here. Hey, why don't you come on over? We're just going to have a little breakfast, Jesus told them. Well, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Well, because they knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, he took the bread, he gave it to them, and he did the same thing with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So now they've got their bellies full. After they had eaten breakfast, Jesus looks to Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me? And do you love me more than these? Well, what's the these? The scholars aren't totally convinced of what it is. It could have been, do you love me more than these fish, this thing that you can do on your own without me? Do you love this boat more than me, your personal property? Um, do you love this profession, your tuna factory? Do you love that more than me? Do you love these brothers around you? Are they more important than me? I, I, we don't really know for sure when he says these things, but it could probably be one or two, or it could be all of them. But Jesus is challenging him at the core of who he is. And this is Peter's response. He says, yes, Lord, you, you know. I mean, listen, you know everything. You're God. You know that I love you. And he says, okay, feed my lambs. Verse 16, a second time, Jesus bores in on him. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Take care of them. Feed them. Pastor. Then he asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Imagine that, three times. Now Peter's grieved. Why? Well, I think there's a couple of things why he's grieved because Jesus keeps pressing this. Remember, remember Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter? And Jesus is kind of going back to him now and saying, you know something, Peter? You're kind of back where we started, aren't you? And so he uses the name Simon instead of Peter. And each time he's asking him about his love, who Peter, no doubt, has this heart and desire for Jesus, but he just can't quite communicate it. And it probably breaks his heart that Jesus is even challenging him and then calling him Simon, his old name. So Peter's grieved when he asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You, you, just, you know that I love you. Well, Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he goes on to say, I assure you that when you were young, you would tie a belt and you would walk wherever you'd go and do whatever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to signify by what kind of death Peter would glorify God through. And after saying this, he told Peter, follow me. And then he says it another time in verse 22, follow me. A couple of things I want you to see here is just this restoring love and this restoring encounter with Jesus. Now, John the Beloved, he's called John the Beloved, and he's also called the disciple of love because a couple of the main themes that you'll always see in the Gospel of John and in First and Second John and in the book of Revelation, you'll see believe, believe in Jesus Christ. You'll see love, love God love people. So he's called the beloved disciple. We believe he was probably the one that was closest to Jesus. But you have to understand that even though he's the disciple of love, wherever you read his writings, he never compromises love for sin. He's always calling people out of darkness. Believe in Jesus. Come out though. Walk in the light so he can dispel any of the darkness in your life. Because see, he knows what we know. The wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life. How do you know when you've experienced eternal life? It's because you're moving out of the darkness. Your love for Jesus becomes more important than walking and living in the darkness. And this is kind of a review, but I want to make sure you never miss it because this is how I try and deal with people. Some get it, some don't. And I really learned this from Jesus because John starts off his gospel, John chapter 1. He starts it off and he says twice. I believe it's in verse 14, 15, and 16 of chapter 1. He says, Jesus came in grace and truth. He never, it's never an either or. Let's go for the grace and forget the truth or let's forget the truth and simply live in the grace. See, a lot of people see grace as God being this permissive, everything is fine under the sun, under the canopy of grace. It doesn't matter how you live or what you believe. It's grace. It does matter. And John never lets us off the hook to make us think it's one or the other. Because see, conversely, the other problem is truth. And see, truth can either be a sword that pulverizes people with the wrath of God, or it can be a surgical tool that cuts to the heart of the issues of our sin and disobedience and rebellion against God. And so John wants to bring these two things together always throughout his writing because he says, look to Jesus. He's grace and he's truth. He's not either or. You say, well, what do you mean? Okay, let me, let me illustrate it from the Bible. Remember the woman who's caught in adultery? Jesus is standing there. It says he bows down into the sand. And you've got these guys who've got Jesus in his crosshairs as well as this woman that's been caught in adultery. They're getting ready to stone her because the law says if somebody's caught in adultery, stone her or him. So they got, man, they got, they got, the, they got the rocks and they're ready to rock. And Jesus says, looks at him, and he goes, if you are without sin, cast the first stone. So what begins to happen? Blop, blop, drop, drop. Now see, there's truth and grace in that. Truth is they could have stoned her. The grace is Jesus called him and said, if you're without, do it. So you see truth and grace there. Now, if, if the story stopped right there, This is where people could go, yeah, see, it doesn't matter, adultery, whatever it is. Jesus doesn't care. But no, Jesus finishes over here, does a beeline, looks at her and says, honey, calls her woman. Let me say something to you now. Where are those who condemn you? They're gone. Okay. And then he says these powerful words. Go and sin no more. She experiences grace but incredible truth, doesn't she? You're safe. Saved your life. Now let's get this thing going right. And see, sometimes, loved ones, that's how we have to make sure that we're living our life before Jesus. Because there's a lot of people now who, you know, there's a lot of people, listen, if you want to know where somebody is, this is what I kind of listen for. If a person is always screaming, more truth, more doctrine, we got to have the truth. You know what I'm usually thinking? Oh, they need more grace. 
Because most people scream for what they don't need. They want everybody else to feel like they do and to think like they do. And then if you've got someone over here that goes, oh, the church just needs more grace. We just need more grace and just whatever, you know, Jesus loves us no matter what. You know what they need more of? They need more truth. Because I'm dealing with, I've, I've dealt, you know, kind of had this onslaught of people that, this is what I'm hearing a lot lately. When people get confronted in an area of your life that is totally, I don't mean maybe, I don't mean possibly, but I mean it's just so totally misaligned with something God says. And they have to kind of be challenged on it. You know what things they say? I love this. Don't we all sin? Sure we do. Absolutely. Are you judging me? No, no, but this is. Well, the Lord said it was okay. Really? Whenever anybody says that, I don't argue with them. I just know what the Bible says. But if someone really believes that God said that this blatant sin is all right in their life because they said it's all right, because what they're really saying is I like what I'm doing and I don't want to leave it, I don't argue with them anymore. You can't argue with God, even if it's not really God. You know, this is what I, I told the men on Friday morning this, that I think I'm going to start doing this. I think it was the men. I can't remember. Maybe it was staff. Kind of, you know, listen. Um, this is for free. I didn't say this first service, but it's really true. I, I'm kind of getting tired of people using this phrase on me. Well, aren't we all sinners? Yeah, but yeah, we, yeah, we are all sinners, but not all of us are living in total abject disobedience from what we know is right. And that's what we're talking about. So I think I'm going to quit. Listen, Paul said it this way. I am the chief of all sinners. And I will tell you anytime, ask me. I am a sinner. But I think I'm going to quit saying that because there's too many people that want to live at that level. I'm a sinner. Therefore, we can excuse everything that I choose to do. Well, Jesus doesn't because he will call you out of it sooner later. And that's one of the problems too because we don't see consequences of our sin oftentimes right away until it explodes in our face or it implodes our life. We just kind of keep going. So I think I'm going to start using phrases like this. Instead of just always saying I am a sinner because I am, I'll never move away from that. But I don't want to live at that level. Here's one of the level I want to live at. I want to live as God's child. That's what the Bible says you are. The Bible says you are loved and taken care of in the beloved. I want to live at that level. I want to live at the level that says I have been forgiven by Jesus. So I think I'm going to start saying that one. Instead of saying I'm this sinner and trying to prove it, I don't have to prove it, I am. But I'm going to start, I'm going to start raising the vocabulary in our church and say, we're going to start living as children of God, as kids of God, as forgiven followers of Jesus, as committed Christ followers. That's the level I want to live at. How about you? Yeah. So let, let's do that. So we can't use this little escape clause. Well, aren't we all sinners? Heck yeah. But I ain't going to live there. And Jesus doesn't want anybody to live there. So Jesus comes to Peter, not to simply relive his past, but to remove the pain of his past. This had to be a deja vu moment for Peter. 
Jesus calls him over to this charcoal fire where he's making some filet of fish and probably some McNuggets and some, some uh, croissants. I don't know what he's making, but he's making this really cool little breakfast for him. And it's interesting, he calls him around this little charcoal fire. And I've shared this before, but it's really interesting because only two times are those words charcoal fire used in the scripture. The other time it's used is guess where? John 18, where what happens? Peter's around a fire. It says he's warming himself. And what does he do next? He denies Jesus three times. So what does Jesus do? See, you got to see this, loved ones. Jesus is always at work in your life, calling you back, calling you out of, calling you to greater things. But sometimes before he does that, he's got to make sure that your past is taken care of. Because Peter's been living in the mindset of, I'm a denier. I'm a sinner, I'm this, I'm that. How can I ever follow Jesus again? How can I ever be a leader in his church? But Jesus makes it clear, Peter, we gotta deal with this because you're gonna lead my church. It's upon your, your confession that I'm the Lord, that I'm gonna build my church. I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to lead and I want you to shepherd, and I want you to care for my sheep that are blood-bought, that I died for, you to man. But we got to deal with something first. So he takes him around this fire. Because, see, the Bible's all about transformation, loved ones. So Jesus is cooking, and he welcomes Peter in the morning to the seashore breakfast. Why? Because he wants to bring him back to a semblance of the scene a reminder of his greatest failure, not so he can rub it in, but so he can rub it out. He, he doesn't want to relive it with him as much as he wants to relieve him from it. And this is what you learn, loved ones, over time. Most of the greatest places of our greatest pain are the places where Jesus will get us because he wants that to be our place of greatest healing. I come from an explosive family. Guess where my greatest healing has come? Within my family and within this family. And Jesus has used my personal family and this family to bring healing to my past. It's not always easy. But Jesus can do the same for you. So now I want you to see the question. And I believe this is, I'd call this the love test. This is the ultimate motivation for us as followers of Jesus. See, Christ never questions us because he needs the information or he needs the answer. Well, PT, what do you think? Help me out here? No, 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 no. The questions are always to provoke you and I to refocus and to begin thinking straight. Because you see here, Jesus is showing Peter it is his love that is the greatest motivation to commitment in following Jesus. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14? He says this, it is the love of Christ that compels me to do what I do because I know he died for me. See, this is the supreme motivation, loved ones, for every one of our lives, is his love motivates us. And you know what that does in turn? That's going to motivate us to love him. See, Peter, he knows he's let the Lord down. He's denied him. He's left him. He has not done anything that he said he would do. But now Jesus, the pursuer and lover of his soul, goes after him. 
and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving here in just a short time. Here's the final test, bro. I can't have people leading my people that aren't getting healthier and whole and that aren't loving me and showing people how to love me. Now, there's, there's four words in the Greek language that are, uh, two of them are used and two of them are kind of seen and almost assumed in the scriptures, but the first one is storge. It's kind of a family love, a, a familial love. It's, it's storge. The second one is eros, we're all familiar with. We get our word erotic from it, and it's sexual love. And then there's phileo, where we get Philadelphia, we get the term, uh, it's, it's brotherly love. It's kind of this really brotherly kinship love. And then there's agapao. It's, it's what the Lord is all about. Whenever the word agape, or excuse me, love is used of Jesus and God, it's always about agape. It's this divine love that just keeps on giving and giving and giving, keeps getting up. It's a forbearing love. I mean, it just goes on. It's loving those that could never be loved. It's a committed love that no matter what, I'm going to be there. And that's what's always used of Jesus. So as I said, Jesus comes to remove the past of Peter to bring healing, and he's beginning to review his future and say, Peter, when we get through this, this is what I've got for you. So what does he do? First time he says to Peter, Peter, do you agapao me? What does Peter say? He says, Lord, you know, I phileo you. Okay, feed my life. Second time, see, Jesus is drilling down, man, he's boring in. He's trying to do some things in Peter's soul and, 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 and to extract some of the brokenness. And second time, he says, Jesus, do you agapao? He says, Peter, do you agapao me? Do you have this divine, this great, this ongoing, unending love? What does Peter say? Lord, you know, man, I just, I phileo you. you you're, I think you're my friend. I'm here, feed my sheep. Now, all of this, you see, Jesus is, is, is really, what I love about Peter, he's honest, he's vulnerable. You know what? He's tired of making the big grandiose statements and then not being able to live up to it. So what is the next words? Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, I think I got you. Do you phileo me? And Peter goes, Lord, you know, I, I phileo you. See, he doesn't want to go back to the way he was. And what Jesus is kind of teaching us here, loved ones, is he starts where you and I are. But he'll always call us further than where we are, but he'll start with where we are. And he doesn't want to leave us where we are. And he's reminding Peter, Peter, it's not about your performance. Ultimately, it's about your heart. Do I have your heart? And really what he's saying is, do I have your love? Because how I have your love will determine the direction and course of the rest of your life. And so Peter gives it his best shot. Because he knows he can't measure up to the agapao. So he says, listen, Lord, you're my friend. And I love you. So Jesus takes these three positive statements. Do you love me? Why does he do that? Because he is eradicating, he is erasing the three denials of Peter's life. Because Jesus knows, and some of us live this way too, those broken things in our lives, those sins, if we don't take care of them, they become like a toxic cloud that just follow us around, that gets bigger and looms 
more dark. And then Jesus does what I love so much. He basically says to Peter, I believe in you. And he re-envisions Peter's call back to being a fisher of men that he spoke to him three years earlier instead of just being a fisher of dead fish. And hear me, loved ones, that's what Jesus does with every person in this room if we will simply respond and allow the motivation of love to compel us to be a part of what Jesus wants to do in us and through us. Remember what John 14 said. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. See, we get this whole grace and truth continue and we, we, we can't live in the tension of it because Jesus is so clear. He says, if you really love me, do what I say. Well, what's that also mean? But don't, don't, then don't do what I say. Or don't do what I say don't do. All of that is about love. He says, if you really love me, you'll keep my commandments. We don't like that. We don't like that kind of a litmus test because we are so infused with this powerful truth that is so important of grace. But we always have to bring those two together and never forsake one or the other. So he's challenging him. You know, this is, why, why do I stay faithful to Trina? I think we're hitting 37 years. Why, do I, why have I stayed faithful to her? Well, PT, it's probably because you got that little license, a little piece of paper that says you're married, and truthfully, you probably couldn't get any better, anybody better. And while both of those are true, that's not the reason I stay faithful to her. I stay faithful to her because I love her. I stay faithful to her because I don't want to hurt her. I stay faithful to her because I don't want to hurt the people around me. So here's the final test that Jesus is going to ask each one of us ultimately. Do you love me? And, and, and do you love me enough to allow me access to lead you into your destiny? Because it may not be easy. Because that's what he's saying to Peter. And he calls him back to what he said to him three years ago. And those are his words, twice. Follow me. Follow me. I'm learning more and more, loved ones. The Christian life is not about sinning less, but it's about loving Jesus more. And really understanding how much he loves you, and you begin to express your love to him. It has this profound effect on each one of us as people. We all know the power of being loved. When I, when I do a wedding ceremony, I, when I get to the ring ceremony, I, I look at that. I got the rings in my hand, and I remind those two lovebirds in front of me, never forget, these rings are not a sign of ownership. You are exchanging them today of this covenant, this mutual love that you're entering into this relationship today. And it's one thing to wear your ring and go, wow, I sure love Trina. It's another thing to look at that ring and know, man, I just know she loves me. And I can't wait until she sees me tonight. <laughs> or I see her, you know. But you know what I'm saying? See, it's one thing to be able to go, wow, I just know I am loved. There's such great security in that. So it's such great trust. And that's what Jesus does for each one of us loved ones. That when you know his love, it gets so easy to follow him and to make the tough calls and the tough decisions because of what he did for you. Here's my love checklist. 
I've shared this in counseling, but I don't think I've ever really shared it with the church. Here's my love checklist. When I'm following Jesus and I've got to make decisions, this is, the way, this is my checklist. Number one, Jesus. What's Jesus going to say? Because I know one of these days I'm going to stand before him. What's he going to say to me then, even though I stand before him today? My second checklist is the church. You know what I know? I stand before you folks every Sunday. And everything that I do or don't do affects you. I stand before you. The decisions that I make, I say, how is this going to affect the church? Third one is the word. I stand before the word every day. Or maybe I should say I stand on it. What's the Bible say to me? Yes? No? Who knows? What is it? Whatever it is, though, that's my third checklist. My fourth checklist is my family. I don't ever want to do anything that's going to embarrass my family. I don't ever want to do anything that my kids are going to have to live with in this town and go, oh, yeah, that was my dad. And then the fifth checklist is this. I got to get up every day and look in the mirror. I got to live with me. Me, me, me. And I don't want to do anything that's going to embarrass me and that I've got to live with. See, with these words, follow me, Jesus says to every one of us, he restores us. He restores Peter here. And this is really important because in seven short weeks, Peter is going to stand up and he's going to preach the boldest sermon of his life in Jerusalem, which at that time was the bastion of hatred toward the resurrected Christ. And he's going to stand up and he's going to preach the gospel that Jesus Christ, whom you killed, died and resurrected. He's alive today. Guess what happens? 3,000 people get saved. And then sometime later, he has to stand before Caiaphas and the council that sentenced Jesus, that conspired against him. And he makes this bold confession of Jesus as his Savior and the Savior of the world again. He preaches the crucified, resurrected Jesus Christ. And he begins to shake the pillars of the Roman world at this time with this, with this lethal message. But some years later, Eusebius tells us, a historian, that when they were putting Peter on the cross, he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner of Jesus, the lover of his soul. What kind of friend inspires that kind of devotion? I'll tell you what kind. It's kind of a, a friend who prayed for him when he was weak. When Peter was being sifted by Satan, Jesus said, I'm going to pray for you. It's a friend who forgives you when you failed miserably and deeply. It's a friend who comes to heal the painful memories to reassert the calling that he had for your life. It's a friend who believed him enough to call out the best in him and not to leave him in, his, in the depths of his depressed denial, but he calls out the best of him. It's a friend who loved him from beginning to the end. It's a friend like Jesus who first loved him and gave his life for him. It's like Peter. To follow Jesus, it must start with, you know, I, this is what, I, I don't love Jesus enough. I don't beat myself up for that. But usually this is what I've learned in my life when I move towards sin is because I'm really not following and loving Jesus to the depths and the degree that I have or I'm getting too big for my own britches and I begin to think I'm something other than what I really am. I was in Trinidad. We're driving the streets. It's crazy. And I'm just, you know, we're in this van. We're driving in the middle of the morning 
2 or 3 in the morning to get to our hotel so the streets are pretty clear. And I'm riding in the front seat of this van with our team and driving through, and it's no problem. And I'm talking to the guy. And we get there in the morning. I get in the same van, the same front seat. And that was the last time. <laughs> because we're driving, we're going through these streets. People just pull out, and they kind of pull out and stop so they can get in. They go into these roundabouts. There is no roundabout way. You just get in, and it's crazy. And these streets, you're going through these small towns. They're narrow, and they don't slow down. It's one of those places where if, 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 you, don't, you, know, if, if you don't like the way they drive, then get off the sidewalk. I mean, they're just all over the place, and it's going. And finally, our team was getting, you know, all of us are white-knuckling it. We go this really narrow thing. There's poles, you know, the t- oh, I don't know if they're telling, but just poles around. And I thought we were going to just take it, you know, take the sides off. One of the guys, how do you do this? And the driver goes, you small up yourself, man, you small up. And I go, how in the world do you do that in this car? But that's what you small up yourself, man. And you know, so we're all been doing, I mean, we've been doing that. Well, there was no accidents. We didn't see any, but it, you know, that, that word kind of spoke to me because I'm just going to Pell-Mell and running the race. You know what I've learned? I've got to small up myself. See, Samuel said this to Saul. I was reading this in the Bible reading plan that some of you follow when we were in Samuel. Samuel, after Saul becomes the king and he starts going south, Samuel walks up to him and he says this, when you were little in your own eyes, that's when God did something in you. But now that you've gotten bigger in your own eyes, God's not doing nothing. Matter of fact, you're not going to be the king. David said this in Psalm 131, Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and I've quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Israel, Creekside, PT, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. You ever notice there's no weaning baby that ever lifted its head from its mother's breast to consider the gross national product, how their stocks were doing. They just sit there, they're quiet, and they're resting, and they're trusting. See, that's what I'm learning, loved ones. I'm trying to, I'm still learning. I, I want to small myself up. I want to love Jesus more because I know how much he loves me. I want a church that we're always smalling ourselves up and making Jesus bigger. And we're loving him more because we just, we have this revelation of how much he loves us. Because I hear people all the time, loved ones, hear me say how often, they, oh, I just love the Lord. I hear the Lord. I'm following the Lord. He told me this. He spoke that to me. See, Peter heard the Lord too, and yet he miserably failed Jesus. And we do that too, but I'm kind of getting just a little tired of the people who, it's not that they fail, it's that they blatantly disregard his love and disobey. And then when they are challenged in it to come out of it, oh no, 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 I love Jesus, he loves me, and those things might be true. 
But we, we don't like this kind of a litmus test that says, John 14, 21, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love is always a love of choice. But I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but, you know, Trina would not be happy with 92% fidelity from me. And can I tell you something? It breaks Jesus' heart. I, don't, I can't speak for him, but he wants a people that are always moving forward and loving him because when we love him and he's our focus, all the other stuff falls away. So here's the question. I think Jesus would ask it of every one of us. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Oh, yes, Lord. Love always has responsibility, and he lays it on Peter. Okay, Peter, then number one, do what I say and give me your destiny because it ain't going to be pretty after a while, but trust me. And I think Jesus would say that to some of us. Ain't going to be easy. It'll be good.